Creative Collisions with Second Home. Every minute of our lives is spent in physical dialogue with the space around us. The spaces we occupy have a huge influence on our psychological well-being and most importantly for us, our creative work. Welcome to Creative Collisions, the podcast where we celebrate creative diversity by bringing you conversations with great talents from different industries, direct from Second Home. My name's Rohan Silver, and today we're going to be talking with Thomas Heatherwick, who's been described as a modern-day da Vinci. Through his design-based practice, Heatherwick Studios, Thomas and his team create large-scale structures for cities all over the world. When Thomas started his studio, it was his aim to bring architecture, design and sculpture together within a single practice. I think Thomas's work is really interesting, particularly the way he draws insights from nature and other fields to inform his designs. And, you know, while you're listening to this, you might want to jump on Google Images and check out projects of his like the Rolling Bridge in Paddington Basin and even the really ambitious designs for Google's headquarters in London and California. So Thomas's studio is in King's Cross, and it's actually just around the corner from my house. And so I've been lucky enough to go there and spend time there dozens of times. It's kind of my happy place, to be honest. And he's created this environment where all these different teams can be building models, can be working with wood and different materials and designing stuff. And then dotted everywhere are these kind of incredible objects, huge aluminium extrusions and strange seashells and conchers. It's just amazing. And these all kind of provide inspiration while you're working. So to begin the interview, I was fascinated to know how someone as obsessed with design as Thomas took on the challenge of designing his own workspace. And do you find yourself inspired by that environment? Or are you thinking principally about trying to inspire your team? To not have the fruit of the world around you is to make something devoid of a lot of the issues you're dealing with. Whatever you're sort of socially doing with making public places, which is my passion, is Mm. the public world we share around us, you are using materials and techniques to make that world. It would seem strange to not surround yourself. I, I don't have a good enough memory, and neither, I don't believe, do my team. So to have a visual library around you, which is what that constitutes, is, is an essential design tool. And then in terms of the way we work, we're organised in sort of family groupings. And we learnt that from the previous building we were in, which was a sort of hodgepodge mashup of two old buildings that had been squidged together. But it taught us in terms of not having these long clinical benches where you end up with an organisation that there's a, a sort of, you can tell, an excitement at how many people there are that many so some design firms seem to like that. I think that we all have the illusion that we're special, everyone. And an environment where you can see everyone just racked up and just like a number, it doesn't breed a good environment for a group leader or a design leader to create a family that a team around needs to be. And yeah. when you're working for six years on a project, devoted to that project for five or six years, it, it's your life for five, six years. And so the feeling of a team and a little family working on that and yet not be isolated from others is a hybrid of both human scale groups as well as a bigger collective. 
And in a way, that's been the interesting thing working at the other extreme because we are designing Google's headquarters in London and their campus in California in collaboration with BIG Architects. And the bit I'm fascinated about is this duality of gorging on the efficiencies of scale of an organization, a building that has 4,000 people working in it, and yet rejecting of the idiocy of the, all these ugly small buildings. But when you then create one big mega building with thousands yeah. of people in it, how do you also keep the human intimate scale that is essential, I think, to nourish us? And how do you not damage a city? by apparently doing something good, but actually make bloated experiences at street level for us all who happen to not work for one of these companies. From the moment I met Thomas, I really liked the way he thought that public infrastructure and public space can be better, more beautiful, more human. And something like a power station, a bus or a bridge being something we could be proud of and value as part of our streetscape. So I was curious to know where this passion for the ordinary spaces came from. I've got no sort of predisposition to, to power stations or to bridges or to any one thing. I am interested in the gaps between that can maybe be left unnoticed or unvalued. And when I was growing up, well, we, we were in a funny time in the late 70s, 80s, where I think it felt like it was a real loss of faith in modern thought in the world around us. So there was a huge factor of regression back to classical modes because the disillusionment with post-war construction, some of the new forms of architectural environment that were made were failing. The reasons for their failure were complex and the social, political side was mm. a big part of that. It wasn't just to do with the design of that. I was interested in the bits that were rubbish. Right. So I j I'm just interested in how you make rubbish things be good. And so you'd just go around and you'd notice the museums were great. Then you would go to a care home to go and see your granny, and it was rubbish. <laughs> Absolutely right. depths of rubbishness you couldn't believe. Yeah. When you put it alongside the experiences of things called culture. So it seemed you could have a great designer, but they could just get stuck repeating themselves yeah. with the same mode. I visited one well-known British architecture practice that was working on 40 art museums at the same time. And even though I admired their design work, it, it was a cliche because they were not that dissimilar from each other. Well, you mentioned that, Thomas, you know, something that you know, from the moment we met, I've been most consistently impressed by, I guess, is your belief that public infrastructure and public space can be better, can be more beautiful, can be more human. So infrastructure seemed to be the thing where we had some weird categorization blind spot. So we, for a while, did some work on think, rethinking power stations. And I just found it sort of hilarious in a way that a power station next to 2,000 homes where it was going to be 85 metres high, 20-storey high project, because it was called infrastructure, and because it was going to be a biomass power station, to get planning, all you needed to do was draw a box 85 metres high and explain it was biomass, submit it. Well, that was, that was infrastructure next right. to 2,000 homes. New homes were going to be built. No design but committee. If this no. Was, but if this was a community centre that was two storeys high, you would have everyone over it, pouring over whether it was going to be the right vernacular local slate that was going to be used on the roof. Mm. 
we all don't actually all go to architecture school and yeah. sort of learn categorizations. We just experience the world as it comes to us. And to me, culture isn't arts. Culture yeah. is the, the life around us, including the pavements. It's everything. It's the culture of the laundrette. It's all our life around us. And so when we worked on the new London buses, I mean, there again, Again, if you had a two-story building, you know, the Commission for Architecture and Built Environment mm. would have been in the centre of London. A yeah, two-story right, building yeah, yeah. would have been all over it, yeah, as well true. as the planners. However, if it was a two-story building on wheels, and there's 8,000 of them, you're more likely to see that two-story building on wheels. And the only, the only stipulation was, and this was only kind of, I'm only saying this for effect, there weren't really any, was, uh, is it red? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and it's like, seriously, my passion is the gaps. And so if they're already amazing people, and there are, that's amazing designers. So if they're already all lavishing their attention on one kind, the interesting thing is the bits that aren't having that. I suppose the satisfaction of making something better, I love working on things where we have relatively low expectations. Yeah, right. Why not devote yourself to that bit? Because it's so much more satisfying. Well, I think also there's something, a real sense of fairness in what you've described as well about distribution, because not everyone walks into an art gallery or into an opera house. But a lot more people get on the bus, walk past that power station or whatever else. There's a sort of democratic side, I guess, to what you're saying. You know, Richard Rogers, great architect, has just published his uh, memoirs. And in it, he says, you only have to look at the appalling architecture that lines the River Thames in London to see the impact of the cheapening of the public realm as urban development becomes a money machine uninterested in environmental, aesthetic and social impact. You know, that's uh, it's, it's a pretty of a depressing tone his book sort of ends on, in mm. a sense. You know, what, what's, your, what's your take? I mean, how, how optimistic are you you can get bold ideas through in big cities around the world? I, I grew up with no hope whatsoever that you could do things. I assumed that my studio would have no chance to work on anything, in, really, in a public realm, and that I would be stuck doing installations in the methods of getting through when something would get called and patronised by calling it public art. And so, in a way, as a team, have been very determined, I suppose, because it was obvious that was the only way. You have to be mm. determined and resilient. And it's going to be really, really hard. But the occasional, occasional time when something happens is a thrilling moment. I've just come back from South Africa. And in the UK, if you built another contemporary art museum it's mm. sort of a very familiar format every city in europe and asia and north america is falling over themselves to have a contemporary art museum but in the continent as big as the whole of europe the whole of north america combined there's been no major public institution for african artists to show their work so was, i've just come back from a, a piece of joyfulness really and Archbishop you were, you were, Desmond Tutu was say, suddenly you... was we, you know he's suffering from cancer and, and two days before the public launch so there's school children everywhere and he came out and danced onto the stage and somehow pulled this together and and helped launch it very low budget I think but I read that, he'd, um, he was he was sort of communing with Nelson Mandela as well about the project right? yes he took a phone call as he said from upstairs <laughs> uh, with and uh, was starting saying yes Madeba no Madeba okay and claimed that Nelson Mandela blessed it. But I suppose the resilience is really important. When I was studying and spent some time interviewing some of the people I respected and admired in the world of architecture and construction and design, I noticed that also some people became quite hardened. And it struck me that if you become hardened, 
actually the game's over. And I think we do need to remind ourselves that Britain did make some big breakthroughs and some amazing projects. Like, I mean, like Richard Rogers' The, the Dome, the right. Millennium Dome, amazing, you know, yeah. rocky start. But what a successful asset to this city we have there and, and a radical building mm. in its way. And the London Eye did happen. You know, wham, slam, bam, right in front of the Houses of Parliament, you know, and, and their genius of finding a way to claim it was temporary. But I think that there's a cannibalistic sort of silly thing that happens, which is that British society trains its lens on whether it does or doesn't like the walkie-talkie and whether it does or doesn't like the shard. I, I try not to judge projects on my taste, but when something is wholehearted, I wholeheartedly back it. But people feel it's boring to talk about the actual problem, which is the cynical, absolute junk that's getting built. I the so agree with that. Trash, I so trashy that. residential projects yeah. getting built right. and thrown up. Which no one and, is moaning and about. And no one moans about. Yeah. Instead, they worry about a garden bridge. Free garden open mm. longer than any yeah, royal park. So true. It doesn't matter. It's a ho- it's, it attempted to be wholehearted. People who really aspire to specialness, London can take it all. And I think we forget London isn't this sort of precious, fragile flower that could get ruined. It's being ruined when people build just cynical commercial trash. And it's because they don't make good photographs and don't make good stories. We're not talking about that. No. And I wish that the kind of people who waste their time debating the wrong things instead cherish and nurture anyone who's trying to make a public project happen that will give value. And even if something's a commercial office building inside, if it's attempting Mm. to give richness and layering to a city that is about richness and layering and daring to have its own voice, anything like that is part of the democratic mix of Mm. our city. There's always going to be good and bad design in the city, but I think Thomas has a point we can be really fixated often about big projects and public spaces and end up ignoring all the corporate soulless developments that happen in every corner of the city. Those don't tend to be talked about as much. Now, if you don't live in London, you might not have seen the huge stink caused by Thomas' proposals to create a garden bridge for the city, kind of a floating park over the River Thames. He talks about, you know, making public infrastructure look nice or be ambitious. It's actually a massively contentious thing because you're talking about big projects that are going to change the face of the city. And so these end up being massively political, uh, hugely fraught. And, you know, I think it's really admirable, to be honest, that people like Thomas keep putting themselves out there and trying to make these things happen because they're really, really difficult to do. So there's a a deep systemic problem that's pushing the the corporate developers cynically building the cheapest thing possible. And the planners are ticking that stuff through because it's so bland and inoffensive in a sense uh, that they're happy. But the aggregate effect is really offensive. I think we should not put the emphasis on the planners only because I've experienced planners who are very frustrated at the lack of quality of what gets put in front of them. And I I think it's too easy to sort of second-guess what you think a planner wants. But I'd be wary of people who blame everyone else for their designs not being so strong. You know, I've had funny things where I had people come up to me and say, oh, well, I don't get the budgets you get. You think, how do you, what what makes you think I get 
Yeah, why right. would I be getting different budgets? Yeah, yeah. And that's a flattering comment because you think, oh, well, that means you think I've got a higher budget, which means maybe I've done an okay job. Most of the time, what you do as a designer isn't line a bath and dream big. Most of the time, you're trying to come up with solutions for how to make something doable for a budget. 95% of the work is trying, to, if you have any ingenuity, is applying it to affordability. No, it's, I know it's something you really think about. Of the projects you've got coming up, which is the one that excites you most right now? Which is the one that, you know, is, is the one that gives you the biggest sort of smile? We've been commissioned to come up with a, a vision for a new city. I can't really talk much more about that. There's two, three projects which are starting to engage with very substantial pieces of land and try to think about the human experience. But how do you put together ingredients? What scale do those ingredients become? So it's almost like composing, where's the silence? Where's the volume? Where's, and each of our projects at the smallest scale have those aspects. So it's now really interesting thinking at a slightly larger scale as to what social dimensions will lead that, what that could be. Some of the things that colour our streets have been in the past the need that you had to go to shops to buy things and yeah. so those were the things animating the street and now with less of that need how do you design when you're starting from scratch and you haven't got any old victorian stuff you yeah, know, we've yeah, been yeah. pretty blessed in britain by having lots of great to the point where the victorians who weren't even trying you know all these warehouse but their back of house buildings are still often way better than anything new oh, way better, yeah. around them I suppose I'm excited now more than ever in the texture of environments because I think texture has been underrated, under-discussed. And you go to places where new cities are being built and I feel like the designers have got over-obsessed with the shapes. So you'll see a, a square thing made from glass and silicon and aluminium panelling and then you'll see a twisted thing made mm. from glass and silicon and aluminium panelling. But they all feel the same. Yeah. You walk up to them you feel the same. Your heart doesn't care. We've got used to associating concrete with the brutalist style. That was a way that an ex a thrill and excitement that came out of the modern movement and post-war had this kind of heyday. But that wasn't the only way to use concrete, for example. And once you think of concrete like a ceramic, and ceramic can mm. be warm, textured, its qualities can be extremely artistic and soft and... I suppose I'm very interested in what the textural experience of the environment around it because we've just got so saturated with cladding. You look at these images of all the new products and they're just covered in aesthetic cladding panels and you just feel like I want, I, my eye looks at it and imagines a tornado hitting it and just ripping off all that, the decoration stuck on the outside even though they are trying to be square and rectangular and pretend they're not decorated. They are decorated by cladding. You know, if you're listening to this and you visualise modern architecture, you're probably thinking of things that are often quite corporate and soulless and places where life struggles to take root. And so it's really nice, I think, to hear Thomas say that inspiration can come from the buildings of the past. And it shows, perhaps, that, you know, the future of our cities doesn't need to be this kind of hard and clinical and sterile sort of place. Maybe the old ideas can lead us into future ones. If other eras could do it, why can't we? It is amazing how dead new places are. You go to where if a developer creates new from scratch, you stand there, your heart doesn't leap.
you don't feel an affinity. And if you ask most people where's their favourite place, real place, that where they just feel good, it tends not to be ever a spanking new environmental building. Individual buildings, there are amazing art galleries, there are amazing individual houses, but whole places, whole areas of newness the new King's Cross development is very successful and, and feels great when you're there. But if you look at it and in your mind's eye evaporate a German gymnasium, evaporate the fish and coal building. Mm. And, and these then, for listeners who, get, who don't know, these are you know, beautiful Victorian brick buildings in the midst of a huge new modern development. But it's the cherishing of those. And in Singapore, there are the shop houses that there's a real policy to try and retain. And they get restored to an, an inch of their life. So they end up looking like they are brand new Disney things. But actually, so many of our projects are integrating old and new. The gin distillery we, we built for Bombay Sapphire Amazing was working project. with the old paper mill that had made the British Empire's banknotes for two centuries. There were 40 buildings of many of every different era going back 200 years and trying to work out what to value and then how to not over-respect the past. Because the Victorians, for example, they were ambitious people, really yeah. ambitious. Yeah, they, they were inventing the future. Yeah. They knew when to properly jump forward and not just defer that everything next to something old has to be a glass box. So at Second Home, we like to name all our meeting rooms after people that have inspired us. And the room that Thomas and I were chatting in is actually called the Jane Jacobs Room. And for those of you who don't know, Jane Jacobs was this amazing American-Canadian activist and writer. And she had a huge impact, particularly in New York. She wrote this brilliant book called The Life and Death of Great American Cities, which is all about how our urban areas could be more creative and more supportive of different types of people. One of the things she wrote in the book was that the great public wealth of our cities comes from the small change of random interactions on the sidewalk. And Thomas is a really great example of someone who thinks a lot about Jane Jacobs' work, so it seemed pretty apt to be sat with him in a room named after her. Well, I was, I was really, really happy that we were doing this interview in the Jane Jacobs' room here at Second yeah. Home because I think she is an amazing character. Mm. She wasn't an architect no. at all. And in fact, her conclusions in The Death and Life of Great American Cities uh, was be very wary of architects and designers. Yeah, right. Be wary of us because we like to make too much order. And the, the really healthy city, and she wasn't prescribing from on high. She was, she was saying this just from over a long period of time, just observing the places where naturally people gathered mm. and observing the places which went dead and that nobody is and the places where crime was happening and the places where there was some self-policing ecosystem, the mystery of successful places from a completely objective position. And I think Jane Jacobs is as powerful and relevant now and will carry on being even more so into the future. Amen to that. After listening to Thomas, it got me thinking about the value that can be found in our space and environment. Often it's such an overlooked part of our creative process, but this key element can support us in our innovation. Winston Churchill once said, first we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us. And, you know, I really believe that the places we work and the way they're designed 
can have a profound impact on our creativity, our productivity, and our well-being. Often in my own creative journey, I put pressure on myself to create something completely new and to avoid the constraints of previous ideas that have been seen before. But now having listened to Thomas, I think that by taking advantage of the previous successes in our industries, that synthesis of old and new is really magical. To be inspired by the spaces and places that are often overlooked. So if everyone's pointing in one direction, it's always a pretty smart move to look the other way. Whatever you're working on, I'm sure there are things that people in your field aren't paying attention to. And maybe, just maybe, that could be somewhere that you find huge inspiration. Creative Collisions was brought to you by Second Home and Radio Wolfgang. Your host was me, Rohan Silva, and it featured the designer, Thomas Heatherwick. This series is produced by Eli Block and Natalia Rodriguez, and the executive producer is Harry Watson. If you want to know more about Second Home, please go to secondhome.com.